Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. I pledge allegiance. To the band. It may perhaps discourage you and others of your kidney or infected with this vicious virus that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now, boy. Just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys are 11. Welcome to Movies That Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald, and in today's episode, I'm going to be talking about Prince's legendary 1984 film, Purple Rain. And to join me today from San Francisco, returning to the co-host chair is Dave Finn. Hey, Dave, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for coming back on the show. I've been hoping that I would be able to get you to come back for another episode, and this this was a good one to do. Yeah, especially since this movie and the album had a big impact on me back in the day when you mentioned that it's anniversaries coming up i jumped at the chance isn't that crazy yeah 35 years actually you would ask me how old i was when this movie came out and this was the year i was conceived so so you definitely have this will be good because you have a more direct kind of reference to both the film and the album you know i mean it's it's so iconic now that i think you know people of every age are at least aware of its presence. I was hoping to have somebody like you who was able to have like a first-hand experience of, of the cultural phenomenon that was Purple Rain. Yeah, I was between my junior and senior year of high school in 84. I was at a prime age to discover this artist yeah. and uh, get sucked into the romance and the movie. <laughs> and and yeah. I was a musician at the time, so it hit me on that level. And Right. I'd never really dug into Prince before that. It was a real re- revelation. In terms of, of Prince's presence in culture, like 1999 was a thing at that point. Yeah, and this movie was conceived after the success of that album and tour, which had come out in 83. And he was on this massive tour with The Time and Vanity Six opening up for him. They were tearing it up around the country, and the album had a number of hit singles. And his uh, record label wanted to renegotiate their contract with him. He was with Warner Brothers, and he he agreed to re-sign with them, but only if they'd give him a movie with his name above the title. (laughs) 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 Which was a ridiculous request, but um, he really wanted to have a bigger impact. He was getting a taste for success, and uh, he was very driven, and his uh, management negotiated with the label and the label gave it to him and that's how the movie got started (laughs) that seems so unheard of today (laughs) i can't imagine having so much i guess ego to just or or or, it's a blend of confidence yeah confidence and yeah aspiration but also uh, yeah ego and maybe narcissism oh sure yeah i never think you may be a bit bit, bit presumptuous on his part as well to just think that you know his record label will just cater to his every whim. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, MTV 
was a pretty new thing at that time, yeah. uh, 83, 84. And so he made the right choice because, yeah, he essentially made a, um, you know, a long form music video yeah. when that was still like a new art form. MTV needed content. He had performance videos of the singles from 1999 mm-hmm. showing on MTV, but, um, what he did for this album and the movie itself were a whole nother level. In the commentary, the movie director, uh, Albert Magnoli, he says he didn't even have a TV at the time and really wasn't that familiar with MTV in 83 mm. when they filmed this. And that it was just a, a coincidence, basically, or a prediction, let's say, of things yeah. to come, that the way this movie is shot and edited helps define what became you know, MTV style. 84, your only real frame of reference for that kind of, I guess, long-form video you'd have thriller and that's kind of about it yeah another thing that kind of came up was that um basically michael jackson and prince were the only black artists that mtv was showing and Mm. that became an issue well i guess hip-hop helped but there was the two of them were influential in getting mtv and the record labels to make more videos for r&b artists Mm -hmm. after the successes of thriller and purple rain i don't think they really ever collaborated uh, I guess there's maybe a song or two they did together, but I mean, and the uh, the irony is that you know Prince had grown up listening to the Jackson Five, so even though he should have been looking up to Michael, it turned out that he was more his competition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and apparently, and they both worshipped James Brown. And apparently, the only time Michael Jackson and Prince performed together was at a James Brown concert. Oh no, kidding! Both, and they both kind of danced around on stage at right. the same time. Well, I mean, Prince is such a virtuoso. I could totally see him as a kid watching TV and the Jackson 5 comes on screen and him being like, oh, yeah, I could do that. He doesn't strike me as somebody who would allow too many influences to come into play. You know what I mean? I think he was very self-driven. Yeah, he apparently did not like to talk about who his musical influences were. Stevie Wonder, he Mm. loved. Sly and the Family Stone, he loved. James Brown, he loved. Yeah. Um, those are kind of the obvious like, Probably like ones. George Clinton and Funkadelic Parliament. And George Clinton, yeah, exactly, yeah. And then during this period that we're talking about during Purple Rain, the girl members of the group, Wendy and Lisa, got him listening to Joni Mitchell and the oh, Beatles yeah. he did love and Led Zeppelin and, and some jazz music. Their influence appears a little bit on this album, but even mm-hmm. more in the later albums, Around the World in the Day yeah. and Parade. You know, you said earlier, he's a virtuoso musician. He's mm-hmm. a prodigy. He was making records when he was still in his teens. He was a great musician on a number of instruments, and he was also a fantastic singer. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and he was also a fantastic dancer, which really came across to me on this viewing. Yeah. A lot of the live performance stuff is just And the director comments on this. He's just like, yeah, I just locked down the camera and let Prince do his thing. It is electrifying. The three CD deluxe version of the Purple Rain album that came out a couple years ago is great because it's got a bunch. It's got a whole disc of bonus tracks uh, of outtakes from this time period, which are not in the movie and didn't end up on any of his albums either. Mm -hmm. And then there's a concert, a filmed concert from the following year in 1985 that's the full show professionally filmed and i think it was released on vhs back in the day he is dancing like a maniac during it and it's incredible you know to watch him perform like it's really it's i was exhausted watching it (laughs) i had to stop halfway through because it, it was tiring but he was on a huge american tour dancing his ass off like night after night this was also the first album with the revolution with the revolution yep 
most of his records before this, he'd recorded himself, all by himself, playing mm-hmm. all the instruments with occasional keyboard or bass parts played by other people. But he always had a band that he toured with. So Prince always had a band. This was the first time he had officially gave the band a name, The Revolution. And it includes people who had been in the previous touring bands, with a notable exception of his old lead guitarist, Des Dickerson, quit right before Purple Rain got into production, partially because he no longer felt comfortable singing the lyrics to these dirty songs. <laughs> <laughs> He'd had a uh, some kind of a religious uh, conversion, mm. and uh, it yeah, no longer right. jibed with his, uh, his personal beliefs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was uh, only going to get worse from there, so he made the right choice <laughs> well, actually i'd argue yeah i guess that's true so he was at, without a lead guitar player now des dickerson does appear in the movie forming a song i don't know if you caught it it's called modern air oh yeah yeah yep he's wearing the headband so okay. you could remember him because he was famously he plays he did play the guitar solo on little red corvette so okay. he appears mm-hmm. in that video from 1983 so he appeared in those videos with prince the odd thing is that that song never got an official release sometimes prince if you quit his band he would support you and give you a solo record but other times you were just out of his organization now he needs a new guitar player and that new guitar player is wendy melvoin whose father was a studio musician back in the 60s and 70s and she was the best friend of Lisa Coleman, who was the keyboard player already in the Prince camp. Yeah, because I remember seeing Lisa Coleman credited in her picture on the uh, Dirty Mind album. She's been in the band for a while, right? She's an excellent keyboard player. Prince usually always had two keyboard players in his band, Dr. Fink and Lisa Coleman. Um, I think Mm -hmm. Fink would mainly do solos and she would play more rhythm, something like that. I I don't know how, I don't know exactly how it breaks down, but, but Lisa Coleman had been in the group for a while and recommended her friend who had, who just was turning like 19 or 20 at the time, which is crazy. He was that young. I did not know this at the time, but they were lovers. They were girlfriends. And if you look at the primary image of the band on the Purple Rain album with them all in their frilly long jackets and paisley outfits and stuff and their crazy hats, like Mm -hmm. Lisa has her arm around Wendy's waist. And that was at the direction of Prince, who said, yeah, put your hand around her waist. And that is the official picture for that album that went under the radar for years. Was there some kind of subtle reference made in the movie about them being lovers or being in a relationship of some sort there might be when you mentioned that i remember at one point watching the film and there was some kind of comment made about either they like they lived together and and i kind of did a little like oh i wonder if they were girlfriends it's just interesting that that's how how innovative was it of him first of all to hire multiple females for his backing band especially like a guitar player but also to have them be openly gay like that and for him to want them to show it, you know, and be open about it. That's pretty cool. For that era, that that's very progressive. Yeah, indeed. So Wendy's in the band and um, they contribute some musical ideas, but basically still the entire album is written by Prince. They get song credit, songwriting credit on Computer Blue. Lisa Coleman helped arrange, write and arrange some of the strings 
that appear on the album? I guess before we dive in any further, what was your familiarity with Prince, I guess? And what's your background? Well, I can tell you the first time I ever encountered Prince was with my older brother. He's about 12 years older than me. And for a while when I was a kid, he moved into my parents' house. He was a teenager. When he was moving in, he brought his CD collection. And I remember going through it at one point and coming across Prince the Hits, how it had, you know, the picture of Prince's profile on the cover. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember if it was a multi-disc collection or not, though. Yes, it was. Yeah, I think it was a triple album. I just remember that caught my eye, and I was like, well, I think this is a little too weird for me. And I'm looking at the, and I remember looking at the names of the songs with all, like, the letter U and the number four. Oh, yeah. And, like, this guy's... This guy's a little too freaky for me. And I remember like tossing it to the side to be like, I did something I never want to listen to. And then (laughs) maybe like 10 years later, I kind of had learned the hits. That's when I kind of made a conscious decision. Like, you know what? Maybe I'm going to check this guy out and see what all the fuss is about. So I ended up buying the CD of Diamonds and Pearls. And also, too, I remember with Prince, particularly in that time period when I was young, I remember a very palpable air of danger around Uh. his music and around him like i i think it was just because my brother had kind of a harder edged sense like taste of music than what i was used to and um and just the way you know the cover art and the song titles and 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 you know my parents knew who prince was and was like oh he's kind of a racy artist you know you're too young to listen to that i remember they told Uh me and, and just having that making that association with him like there's a little kind of like you know, a little bit of an edge to him that made me a little uneasy. And even now, like in some ways, like I, I, I think I've still kind of had that association with it. Like there's a little bit, a little, little air of danger to him, which before when I was younger, it used to scare me, but now I find it a little appealing. Sure. So that, that's my Prince history. <laughs> and sadly, I never got to see him in concert. He was, he was one of my bucket list people. He came to Buffalo once, but I wasn't able to get tickets. So did you keep up with his, releases like here and there um i remember when musicology came out i thought that was kind of a, a cool song and my brother again he, he bought that album and i remember listening to it with him in the car when it first came out and we liked it it wasn't it didn't wow either of us but it was you know it was good and just a couple of the songs here and there yeah i i guess for me i think the first time i'd ever seen an image of him was mm-hmm. um in a record store Back in like maybe 1980, the his second album, self-titled Prince, with him with the long hair and kind of airbrushed, riding a unicorn <laughs> uh, on the back cover, <laughs> naked. And I just remember seeing this guy, and his name was Prince, and mm-hmm. he looked so beautiful and exotic and strange. Yeah. I had no idea who this was, and I think uh, I want to be your lover is on that album, mm-hmm. and that was a hit single. And of course, the first time I heard it. On the radio, I thought it was a girl singing. Yeah. So for me, for years, <laughs> Prince was like, he's this weird sissy dude. Yeah. Uh, and I was totally into heavy metal and prog at the time. So I, oh, I was I not listening to R&B yeah. at all. In <laughs> fact, I might have even been one of those like disco sucks guys. Oh, no. <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> On the radio, I must have heard 1999 and uh, Little Red Corvette. Mm-hmm. were this big singles and uh delirious i guess so i heard those songs on the radio and they weren't my thing but um i think i did hear something in little red corvette that was kind of appealing but all those songs you know all those songs are kind of quirky and sexy and, and 1999 is particularly you know if you get into the lyrics 
uh, you know, or, or, you know, about this apocalyptic world changing event that's going to happen and stuff. And there's something narratively going on there, almost like a science fiction punk funk thing. And, and uh-huh. those videos, were very striking, just them performing, you know, in their costumes and stuff stuff the singer jill jones who uh is in this movie sang (laughs) backing vocals and is in some of those videos so if you had been up on prince you would have recognized her she's very fascinating because she was like a i think at one time a girlfriend but she kind of just lived in his house for years (laughs) oh wow and like toured with him and if he ever needed a, a singer to sing some backing vocals he'd bring her into the studio and it's vague because she at some point she was the girlfriend but later he was dating vanity and vanity moved into the house and the three of them lived in the house together she had a weird relationship with prince and and apparently was one of the few people who would dare like criticize him <laughs> to his oh, face oh wow and yeah like, he appreciated that he appreciated her opinion she's like this unsung hero of of the time period and she eventually got a solo album and then he was done with her in this time period 83 84 the movie was made at the end of 83, and then the finishing touches were put on the album in 84, and then all of that stuff was released in June and July of 84. That When that started in 83, Prince was dating Vanity, and she was supposed to be the star of the movie. Now, I don't know if you know Vanity, but she put out, she was in the group Vanity 6. I think they had maybe two albums mm-hmm. out by this time, and she wanted to be an actress, and she wanted to go solo, and... I think their relationship also was not going well okay. by the time, like the, as the movie deadline was coming up. But uh-huh. she got off, according to her, she got offered the part of Mary Magdalene in Martin Scorsese's oh, Last Temptation. Wow. <laughs> and she said, like, I really, you know, someone advised her, like, yeah, you really got to do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's good advice. <laughs> um, and so she told that was her official excuse for not doing Purple Rain. And then, irony of ironies, the Scorsese project got delayed by a year or two. A few years. uh, It was 88, I think. You're right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, ultimately, Barbara Hershey ended up getting that part. The thing about Vanity was that she she was uh, very charismatic, very beautiful. And they were really banking on people are going to want to see this Prince and Vanity movie. That was one of the reasons the movie got any funding up front in the first place. They were screwed for a little while, and they eventually found uh, Apollonia Cotero. Uh, of course, that's I don't think that's her real name. Um, no. <laughs> oh, and in fact, yeah, Prince named her Apollonia after the character in The Godfather. Oh, really? <laughs> that Apollonia was the name of the local Sicilian girl that Michael yeah. Corleone marries. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, while he's in exile mm-hmm. for murdering <laughs> two people back in the States. So she is very beautiful. And she was apparently an uh, aspiring uh, actress. She was also a dancer. She was not much of a singer. But um, Prince uh, made do and recorded an album with her. Basically, he just slotted her into Vanity Six. And mm-hmm. it became Apollonia Six. So there's two other women in the group. And one of them, Susan Moonsey, who I don't think she has any lines in the movie, but she was an ex-girlfriend of Prince's. So basically, wow. <laughs> he dated two-thirds of Vanity Six. He, he did not ever date Apollonia. Which is the one um, that you everybody immediately would assume that he and dated. At the time, oh, they, they must be dating because they've got sex scenes. She gets right. naked a couple times. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there's a deleted <laughs> scene where they 
they make love in a barn. So Apollonia was not dating uh, Prince because she was dating David Lee Roth at the <laughs> David Lee Roth. Well, she's not one for taste, is she? (laughs) Right. Wow. That I just learned that fact yesterday, and it blows my mind. (laughs) Because so much of the the movie is performance scenes Mm -hmm. on stage, all that music had to be recorded beforehand. There was almost a year's lag time between Prince writing and recording some of those songs and then them showing up the movie, he had like a you know like a mantra of like I'm going to record or write a song a day, and he kind of lived up to that for yeah. like for this period of his career. So by the time the movie came out, he had already recorded a couple of other albums worth of material with other people. He had recorded about a third of his next album, Around the World in a Day, which got released the next year and he had started up a new relationship with sheila e drummer mm-hmm. <laughs> he turned into a singer and he wrote and recorded her entire album in this time period and then later he started dating Susanna melvoin who is the sister of wendy melvoin in his group her identical twin sister <laughs> so she's in this band called the family and they released one album Prince plays almost all the instruments on it. He wrote all the songs, but <laughs> he hired her and this other guy, uh, St. Paul was his nickname, to mm-hmm. sing. St. Paul had been one of the keyboard players in the time. <laughs> so here's the big secret that's never talked about in the movie. And the movie is kind of a joke because of it. Or, uh-huh. or it's like a meta level to, to, to the movie. Mm-hmm. Is it the the time was created by Prince and Morris Day. Prince almost all of their material, played almost all the instruments on their <laughs> albums. But Morris Day was a childhood friend of his, and so he had and he loved Morris's style and sense of humor. So the time was basically an alter ego of Prince fronted by his best friend. And so he basically made, yeah, a weird clone of himself <laughs> to then open up for him on tour. <laughs> and release albums under the name of the time. And he would not give himself credit. He would give credit to his friends so they would get money and have a career, but he was calling the shots. So that aspect of the Purple Rain movie is kind of fictitious in that a big part of the plot is his competition, the competition between the time yeah. and the revolution, and whether who's going to get the slot at the, t- the club. That's like kind of a, of a fictitious uh, squabble. But there was a real competition between the bands in that when apparently during that 1999 tour when the time was opening up for prince's band the time were killing it night after night a very hot band and they were better than prince's band many nights and they started grinding on him about it and so that aspect of the movie is true weirdly enough though uh jam and lewis had aspirations to do other things like producing and writing their own material which Prince wouldn't let them do (laughs) in the time. So they started producing for other artists and they apparently, they were late for a concert because they had gone out of town Mm -hmm. to produce a record for somebody and they came back late to this show and Mm. didn't have a good excuse. They didn't want to tell Prince what they were doing and he fired them, Jam and Lewis. They went on to form Flight Time Productions and they had huge, huge success producing Janet Jackson, you know, Control, uh-huh. 
and like Rhythm Nation, all that. Yeah. Rhythm Nation. You know, it was a blessing ultimately for them to get kicked out, but mm-hmm. it meant they do not appear in the movie because they were no longer in the time. Morris Day was flabbergasted by this, that Prince huh. could be so cold and heartless to fire these longtime friends. So he's really acting in this movie, I yeah. think, because he was not happy with the situation with the time. And um, by the time the movie came out, Morris Day had actually quit the group. Oh, wow. Okay. And the time essentially folded. They mm-hmm. were originally intended to be the opening act for Prince to tour Purple Rain. But now that the time had folded, Prince took the remaining members of the time, created the family, and instead had his new girlfriend's group, Sheila E., be the opening act because she was having huge success with her debut album, The Glamorous Life. She was who I saw open for him in that 1985 leg of the tour he would come on and then all of her group would come out at the end and join up with the revolution and do this mega long version of i would die for you i think i had like uh maybe somewhere in the first 10 rows and i was like right in front of wendy like wow. the whole time i was not that familiar with his music the odd thing is that the set list for that tour was all of the songs from Purple Rain, a couple of B-sides, mm-hmm. and a handful of songs, the hits, from 1999. But <laughs> almost nothing from anything earlier. He had made a calculated decision to broaden his audience. Previously, he'd been this cult R&B artist. Right. It's not until the third and fourth albums, Dirty Mind and Controversy, that he really develops this punk-funk style, where he's getting political, and he's getting into gender-bending in his costumes and his lyrics right. and mm-hmm. he's talking about religion and he's talking frankly about sex but he was an underground artist 1999 he was starting to break out and uh, having some mainstream pop success and he wanted more of it and you know, it was a conscious decision to uh, to appeal to a white rock audience which is why you get a more of a rock sound on this album that's what I responded to. For me, the end is the Batman soundtrack that came out in 89, <laughs> yeah. which oddly enough, it's all him in the studio mm-hmm. basically testing out his new synthesizers. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I also had some of those later albums like Diamonds and Pearls, but but even that, he lost this edge that he's got, that yeah. he's perfecting to sharpness on yeah. Purple Rain. Like that, that was... I followed him for a while very intensively, and I returned to this period, but I'm not a career-spanning uh, right. fan. And I just get so overwhelmed at his body of work, and just like because he never really stopped being prolific. He just kind of got to a point where he stopped releasing his material. He has how many triple albums in like the 90s and the aughts that he ended up releasing later and we're going to be probably calling the archives for years it's unbelievable so he's been given this movie deal a guy i believe his name is william blinn comes in and does some research spends time in minneapolis and writes a script based on uh, hanging out with prince and his his entourage for a little while and people are generally happy with that script his manager's find this director, Albert Magnoli, who had previously only directed a short film called Jazz, which I have not seen, but apparently is very impressive. They hired him to write and direct it. And he basically rewrites that previous script almost entirely. Prince gave him (laughs) apparently a hundred songs to listen to. (laughs) That sounds about right. 
<laughs> to to use in this possible movie. The songs were not written with the, a narrative in mind. So uh, Magnoli went through these tapes, found a handful that he liked, you know, built those into this, the structure of the film. They shot the film at the end of 83, a lot of it in Minneapolis, mm-hmm. where it was freezing cold. <laughs> so a lot of the times when Apollonia is out there in her lingerie, she is literally freezing cold. Some of it was shot in L.A. also. They used the real club, the First Avenue. That's an actual club, and it apparently used to be a bus depot. And it had a smaller club attached to it called 7th Street Entry, and that's where like punk bands like The Replacements and Husker Du, because uh, those, are, those are Minneapolis bands yeah, on the yeah. Punk, on the, from the punk side. And it was a big deal if you graduated from the 7th Street Entry room to the big stage on First Avenue. Prince would frequently play there. He lived right outside of Minneapolis. He would often premiere new songs with his band there, or he would uh, bring acetate records of his latest material and give it to the DJs there to play. Oh, wow. <laughs> the manager, Billy Sparks, the guy who plays him, kind of a rotund black dude with uh-huh. wears glass, sunglasses most of the time, he was a good friend of Prince's, and he was a... Uh, he used to be a concert and record promoter, and he had known oh, Prince wow. since 1980. I find him very charming in the movie. Yeah, he. Yeah, I liked him in that. He's the one who kind of presents this whole struggle as a, you know, as a business decision of like, yeah, you're not packing them in like you used to. Mm-hmm. They paint Prince as like this irresponsible, doesn't care, it <laughs> doesn't show up. Yeah, like yeah, self-involved. And, yeah masturbatory pun intended yeah (laughs) some of the events of the movie are based on things that really happened so it's it's fair to call the movie autobiographical but some of it is fiction too yeah like semi semi autobiographical his father in real life there's no record of him attempting to kill himself I, i don't know that the father was even physically abusive to the wife prince's parents divorced when he was 10 but he got a new stepfather and apparently the stepfather was the one he didn't get along with oh okay his birth father was a musician and they were estranged for a long period of time and i guess around the time in this movie they were starting to communicate with each other a bit more and that's how he john l nelson ends up getting a songwriting credit on computer blue because there's this piano melody the the middle section of computer blue is a different song that was supposedly written by his father and again Hmm. the rumor is that that's basically prince giving his father a royalty check You know, so Prince had this ambition to, you know, break out and become a bigger star. And the the goal was to make a rock and roll movie in the style of like an Elvis Presley movie mm-hmm. or the Beatles movies. So it succeeds on that level. But it's interesting that the movie goes so dark and mean. Violence yeah. and the, and the, the, the gunplay and mm-hmm. you know, near death. And the suicide, and yeah. It's interesting that, you know, it fits into this. I guess this type of movie that was made at the time. I think it was in an era of filmmaking where if it was really fluffy and frothy, it may not have caught on the way that it did. I I don't know if audiences would have had the same tolerance for that kind of um, lightweight stuff that they did back in Elvis and the Beatles day. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of this is like a straight-up rom-com, though, but then it veers into uh, psychodrama. There's a bunch of kind of old-fashioned, almost like skits between Morris Day and 
Jerome Benton that are almost like out of some like vaudeville. Like routine. the who's on first, but what's the password? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it holds up. It's very funny. It almost plays like a silent movie at times. Yeah. Like some of these gags. Morris Day is just really electric. He kind of stole the scenes that he was in. Yeah. Prince kept up with that androgyny and gender bending in his costuming and his makeup and his hair. Mm-hmm for years and we're getting it full blown in this movie you know he's wearing jewelry he's got this big hoop earring and yet he's like this macho potentially toxic masculinity right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> girlfriend slapping uh, brute basically brute yeah <laughs> in the movie and uh it's such a weird blend i guess the way i always took it was that he identified with women and their sensibilities uh-huh. and took on aspects of them partially in an effort to seduce them, but also to be them. And yet for all his androgyny and blending of of fashion styles, he's never appealing to a male lover. Right. And he's never really had much of a gay following either, you know? Yeah, I wondered about that. Yeah, I mean, girls go nuts for Prince, but there's never really been much of a connection with the LGBTQ community with Prince. Yeah, right, right, right. And I don't know what his own personal, you know, we mentioned it earlier that, you know, he did have a, a you know, a, a lesbian couple in his band. Right. And he was, according to them, he was perfectly fine with it. But I don't know, like, his broader feelings about homosexuality. There's this moment in the movie where uh, Prince rides in, storms in on his motorcycle and steals Apollonia away from Morris. And, and Morris yells at him. You, you know, you motherfucker, long-haired faggot. Mm-hmm. The irony of that is that, yeah, he's a faggot because he's stealing your girlfriend. Right. Um, you know, that, that that's not what if that's not the correct usage Use of, that, of that word. Right. <laughs> um, and that's the only instance of that word in the movie. You know, that was a common word used in high school for, mm-hmm. by by me and my peers. You know, it was a one stop shop for uh, insulting another man we used it so casually that you know it didn't even it didn't even hit me at the time in this movie but it really stands out it does yeah i never even you know growing up i never even knew that that's what that word actually meant i heard it tossed around all the time but i never ever made that connection we're gonna get into the film now itself and there will be spoilers just so that everybody knows (laughs) and but i can't imagine that most people i'm sort of an anomaly in the fact that i had never seen this movie before so I, i would Assume as much that people who have not seen it would not be listening. But if you haven't and you are listening, just be forewarned. I'll say overall, the album is the more significant (laughs) document than the movie. The movie is an extended promotional kit for Mm -hmm. Prince and the Revolution and for the album. And and some of the solo artists that he was producing Mm -hmm. also. But as a narrative, it's not anything to run home about. (laughs) Some of the acting is is bad. Mm -hmm. Um. But some of the acting is good, too. My overall take on this is I think if you were to take it as just like a a, a proper movie, I think it would disappoint. I don't want to say that it wouldn't be successful, but it's just meh (laughs) in 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 thinking of it as an actual film. But it's more successful if you think of it as a long form music video. Really, it's a masterpiece because it's Prince on full display doing his thing. Yeah. And it is, you know, first time director, but I think it's filmed very well. It's lit, lit gorgeously mm-hmm. and and uh it's got a lot of good editing in it a lot of yeah. fast-paced stuff whatever shortcomings it has technically or 
or with the acting and and or with the screenplay which there are and <laughs> i mean the, yeah. a lot of people have criticisms about that and they're justified but honestly god like the performances when you when prince comes on that stage or when the time comes on that stage and start doing their thing you don't care you know like yeah. who cares at that point that's not what it's about that's not the that's not the main thrust of the film you could easily be confused i think into thinking that some of these performances are actually being performed live <laughs> yeah, in the movie yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because some of the music was actually recorded live, mm. uh, but, um, but they are lip syncing <laughs> throughout yes. this movie and you don't very ever, convincingly ever feel it. Right. Yeah. First song is let's go crazy. Don't lie. Where's your living here? Take a look around. At least you got friends. I call my own lady. It is the uh, extended mix. It's got this whole involved funk workout in the middle. Um, that that, is that not threw on, me yeah, off. It's not yeah. on the studio album version. <laughs> yeah, that threw me off when I was watching. I was like, oh, okay. I can I so, get with this. Yeah, that was available on the 12-inch. It's my preferred version of that song. Yeah. The director was creating this montage, introducing all the characters that we're going to see in this movie. Mm-hmm. So while the group is playing the song live on stage, you're also seeing Apollonia arriving in Minneapolis. You see Morris Day trying out costumes and posing in front of the mirror. It's like the overture while the cast is setting the stage for It for is the, the overture. And yeah, so the director had put together this montage and basically came to Prince and said, hey, I need you to make that song longer. <laughs> so it fits. Uh, Apollonia goes to the club because she wants to make it big. Uh, she yep. gets past the bodyguard chick. Now that big white-haired, bearded dude, Chick Huntsbury, (laughs) um, was Prince's (laughs) genuine bodyguard at that time. Oh, no kidding. Apollonio gets into the club, and she meets Jill Jones, who's uh, the blonde girl. Yeah, Apollonia wants to get a job at the club as a dancer or a singer or whatever, and Jill is looking at her suspiciously. We later see through some interactions that Jill seems to have a crush on Prince, (laughs) <laughs> or she's she seems to be his biggest booster there at the club because they get these kind of intimate moments every once in a while where she's complimentary or crying or whatever. Right. But I don't think we ever see her outside of the club. So she, she's this weird enigma. And like I said earlier, yeah, her character you, was kind of confused me a little bit. If you were familiar with Prince's output, you might know who she was ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I certainly didn't. What did you think of her acting? <laughs> um. <laughs> She's kind of doing this Marilyn Monroe Sex slash kitten. Betty Boop yeah. <laughs> character where, yeah, she seems extremely vapid. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say that's a stylistic choice. Okay. So I was like, this is probably the weakest performance in the film. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. I'm newly appreciating her, but yeah. Apollonia is no Oscar winner there either. No, she's I mean, not. It, yeah. I think Jill Jones stood out to me a little bit more because her character was a little exaggerated. Yeah. And so I noticed it more. Then the time come out and do Jungle Love, they rock it. Their performances were a highlight of the movie for me. Yeah. 
good contrast to Let's Go Crazy, which it's a dance number, but it's a rock number, yes. too. And it really stands out in Prince's catalog. So that's that's a straight up rock number. And yeah, he never time, really was one to solo like that. And then um, the time come out and do this dance number, which is much more like Prince material from Dirty Mind or Controversy. Right. And it's a more standard uh, good time, get out of your seat and dance mm-hmm. song. So already, like... The movie is positioning them as opposing forces. Since Prince was in charge of both of these projects, you know he's he's being able to uh, exhibit different parts of his personality. Yeah, that was one thing I thought the movie did really well. That surprised me is that it does like a really good job of keeping like within the confines of his persona, while also creating a like a separate character as an extension of that persona. Yeah, which yeah. Is, which is kind of neat, and I'm sure it was intentional in 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 so far as that they wouldn't. He wouldn't have to stretch too many acting muscles, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, right. You see, during Jungle Love, Apollonia enjoying it, and I think uh, maybe some eye contact is made between her and Morris. After the show, Prince goes home. He lives with his parents. <laughs> <laughs> and then you find out that his uh, dad is uh, violent towards his mom, and then he proceeds to hit Prince, knocks him across the yeah. room. This comes out of nowhere. You know, we're seeing this is this good time rock movie about the struggles of making it. And now we're getting some uh, spousal abuse and child abuse. It's a dark theme of the movie, but I, I felt bad in that. I had to giggle in some of the scenes that showed his mom and dad's <laughs> um, yeah. marital yeah. strife. Just because they're so they're a little hokey. The script is at fault because it's just it's exposition. Like, you will listen to what I tell you. You will not do this. You know, like, it's just very. Yeah. Yeah. There's no nuance to it. Right. It seems like it's being flown in from some other movie, but right. it's not. Yeah, we're just seeing like a, we're seeing such a narrow window uh-huh. <laughs> into that part yeah. of their lives that it's, you know, it definitely feeds the narrative later on where Prince is, it gets violent with Apollonia, but it's very heavy handed. Yes, it is. <laughs> That's a good word for it. Yeah. Ooh, oops. No pun intended. Ah, <laughs> uh, but um. <laughs> um. Then you see uh, Billy Sparks, the club manager of First Avenue, and Morris Day walking down the street, kind of conspiring against Prince. Morris says he's going to form a girl group, maybe get Prince kicked off the bill at yeah. the club. In subsequent scenes, we never see the crowd react negatively prince that was yeah i didn't quite get that we don't see the crowd react negatively and we also don't see any of the things that he was accusing him of of like being late and not showing up and yeah you see disapproving glances from morris and and the manager uh-huh. <laughs> at prince doing some kind of edgy mean-spirited stuff on stage but yeah he doesn't get booed by the right. crowd ever. Right. <laughs> later at the club jill jones gives the tape to prince And it's a song that Lisa and Wendy, the girls in the group, have written. Apparently she heard it, she liked it, and gives it to Prince. Lisa and Wendy know that he wouldn't take, he wouldn't accept it from them, straight from their hand. I don't know why this just popped into my head just now, but just so that the listeners are aware, Prince, his character in the movie is technically, I guess, nameless, but they refer to him as the kid. You're right. Everybody else in the movie uses their real names, Mm -hmm. but the kid was apparently the name for years that all of his business associates used to refer to him. That was his genuine nickname. That's Um, cool. Yeah, I I thought that was weird and kind of enigmatic, but it turns out to be based in reality. Well, because apparently he nor anybody else really ever liked his name prince but one of his managers 
said like oh i refuse to call him prince i can't stand that name <laughs> <laughs> so he called him the kid instead that's funny um then you see sex shooter in a rehearsal so you've got the two girls from apollonia six formerly vanity six they don't have a lead singer for this group yet so mm-hmm. this is really just kind of setting up what's going to happen they leave that rehearsal morris and jerome then run into this woman on the street <laughs> who accuses him of not showing up for a date or something yeah that was and, uh, and then jerome picks her up and throws her in into a dumpster. the dumpster <laughs> and i can't tell if apropos she was of be, nothing that whole scene i could tell if she was supposed to be like a prostitute or a groupie or a collab or well some for other a position. second yeah i kind of thought maybe she was a hooker for a hot second because she i thought maybe she was like oh maybe he didn't pay her or something and maybe that's what what right. initiated that but i it didn't really that it really stood out to me as like yeah. wow it's that's a mean thing to do, but it's mm-hmm. all played for laughs. Yeah, it's super slapstick. Yeah, I, I don't think that you could get away with that now. Well, if today there's she would be putting old. him in the dumpster. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> but there's something very old-fashioned about it, and it's and and that kind of like weird, old-fashioned demeaning of women mm-hmm. shows up in this movie a lot, and yeah. it's played. It's always played as charming. It's an interesting thing to investigate. Negging. Right. Has become, you know, since that's become identified as a strategy for seducing women, you see Prince and Morris Day do it a lot, or you see Prince do it a lot, insulting women or putting them down, but it only seems to bring them, bring them closer. They're, they're flirting together, Prince mm. and Apollonia, but eventually he's able to win her heart. And, right. uh, while they're <laughs> Through walking his incessant around, nagging. While they're, why they walk around, she spots the crazy guitar in the window display because mm-hmm. they're talking about their dreams, I guess, for the future. What do yeah. you want? His eyes fixate on this guitar in this window, which is utterly strange. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and because he doesn't already own a guitar, or at least one guitar that we know of that he owns because he performs with it on stage. Yeah. So that was kind of goofy, too. Right. But, you know, it's a symbolic gesture and it's yeah. metaphor for you know what she's willing to sacrifice for him true yeah yeah it's just matt <laughs> <laughs> then they drive off on his motorcycle and you hear the song take me with you i can't disguise the pounding of my heart it beats so strong it's in your eyes what can i say they turn me That's a duet with her, Apollonia, mm-hmm. and of course Jill Jones singing backing vocals, and Lisa Coleman, or whatever. There's yeah. there's a bunch of different people singing on that apparently. And this song, "Take Me With You," is a totally different type of song, kind of poppy, almost uh, '60s psychedelic, mm-hmm. almost yeah, sweetness. It's got acoustic instruments on it, and um, it is nothing like the previous songs we'd heard, and it is nothing like anything else previously in Prince's catalog, right? Um, or that we will hear on the album from here on out either. <laughs> yeah, it blew my mind when I first heard this, you know, when I saw the movie. And it was originally going to be on the Apollonia 6 record. Um, but he 
swiped it away from them, you know, just in time. Right, to, right, you know, right. To fit it into this movie. Another song that was originally on that Apollonia 6 record was a song called Manic Monday. Oh, I, I think I've heard that one before. It's Apollonia singing lead <laughs> on it. And uh, he swiped it away from them the last minute and gave it to the Bangles because he thought Susanna Hoffs was cute. <laughs> so he basically gave them this completely finished song and they you know they recorded their own version of it and had a huge hit with it uh, wow. i believe that was the following year so apollonia six basically got screwed yes is what i'm is the, is the short version um yeah take me with you is this lovely scene romantic uh, escape on the on the motorcycle they leave the city they're out in the woods they're out in nature and then there's the whole lake scene which is another kind of mm-hmm. negging i guess this lake minitonka i guess they're talking about dreams here too like what do you want you know what, what do you want from you know your career or whatever and she wants to make it and he says uh well first you got to purify yourself in the lake <laughs> purify yourself in the waters of lake minitonka yeah and she proceeds to disrobe and then jump on the water apparently the water was freezing cold according to the director she was supposed to deliver a line when she came out of the water, but uh-huh. she couldn't. She was like in shock, basically. <laughs> so they just did without it. Yeah. She pops out of the water and he laughs and, you know, says that that ain't Lake Minnetonka. He set her up for this, but Which at the a, same time, yeah. he didn't make her do it either. So it's she's complicit in her own in her own humiliation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In her thirst for to want to please this guy or to right. be successful. On the other hand, it's kind of means. Yeah, kinda it's mean. a little demeaning. Teenager in me, it was a chance for a nude scene, right? Which was probably a calculated move on their part too, because I oh. think they want they wanted an yeah. R-rated movie. Why would right. you make a movie star Prince? <laughs> if right, you right, right, right. Right. Now, okay, th- th- this was a piece of trivia that I came across that Jennifer Beals was originally in the talks to play Apollonia's oh part. Oh, my God. And that she turned it down sense. because she wanted to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> Yale, to be specific. Oh, really? Yeah. Is this is this after Flashdance, then? Yes. So she was already mm-hmm. a thing? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Which I thought was really wild because she doesn't have the same kind of intricate relationship that Apollonia does with Prince. Yeah, no. Um, but she's like she's a better actress, probably. Oh, very much so. Even after she gets dressed um, and they're ready to leave, he negs her again by driving off on his motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, by that point, I was starting like to get a little like annoyed with him. he's going to her there. Yes, it is <laughs> annoying. Yeah. That he comes back and she gets on the back of his cycle. Yeah, and then he says to her, like, don't get my seat all wet. It's like, dude, come on. <laughs> right. Give, now, <laughs> give this girl yeah. a break. <laughs> but she is totally in love with him. So yeah. it's irritating to yeah. see him behave this way. Right. But I knew guys in high school and later oh, of course. who did treat women yep. like this. Oh, yeah. And they got laid. You know, mm-hmm. it was successful. I guess it's its own kind of art form. <laughs> right. <laughs> in a really kind of sick and twisted way. We go back to the club. Uh, this is where you get the Morris and Jerome skit. Yes. The, the, the what's the password? Yeah. You got it. What? You got it. You got it. No, what's the password? That's it. 
No, what is it? <laughs> yeah. Who's on first? So that's a good, yeah, that's a good sequence that, yeah, could have been a vaudeville routine or shown up in a Costello. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it, it gets paid off a little later yes. uh, in the club because Jerome actually tries to use the password and Morris doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is the scene where Des Dickerson appear, uh, appears and plays the song Modern Air for years and years before bootlegs started showing up. The movie was the only place you could get that song. Um, apparently, he later touring, opening up for Billy Idol. So he hmm. did continue, but I don't think that group ever released an album. Uh, don't quote oh, wow. me on that. You, then you see uh, the revolution in a backstage meeting. The girls ask about whether he's listened to their demo, and that's when he pulls out the little clown puppet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Starts talking to them. It's a li- like a little uh, jack-in-the-box toy thing that moves up and down, yeah. Uh, Wendy gets upset, like, oh, yeah, of course you didn't listen to our, to our yeah. song. Like, why yeah. would you? You don't need us. You, you don't need anybody, blah, blah, blah. Right. Dr. Fink, in one of his few lines, makes a bad period joke <laughs> about <laughs> oh Wendy, God. which I won't repeat here. That's yeah. a little tasteless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they leave, and he sticks it. He finally puts in the tape. Sticks it in, listens to a couple opening chords of what we recognize now as being Purple Rain, and he shuts the tape off. So the huge kind of in-joke of this is that he wrote that song by himself. They did not write that song. It is true that the band helped arrange it. Wendy was the one who used the particular guitar chord phrasing that you hear in that oh, song. Oh, the real, the real famous one that kicks the song off. Yeah, yeah. So, hmm. you know, he had a more basic version of the song, of the chord progression, basically. And yeah. she expanded on it by adding sevenths and ninths. That's cool. And stuff like yeah. That. Morris starts flirting more obviously with Apollonia. He really wants to get her in this band, but yeah. she has no romantic interest in him. You know, she's right. up to this point, she's in love with Prince. Beautiful Ones is the next song. piano ballad basically he played all the instruments in the studio you know he's making googly eyes at apollonia from the stage and but when he sees that she's sitting there with morris day he starts uh you know it starts getting him upset Uh, she waits outside uh the club he comes down and they drive off go into his house they're looking through the window and seeing his parents inside now uh like making out on each other and he's and he says freak show Um, he takes her into his basement which is elaborately decorated with weird puppets and masks and (laughs) drawings and stuff uh he plays a tape of backwards music to seduce her and he does these little magic tricks in front of her and it somehow works (laughs) it somehow works they start making out and yeah. doing it 
Like that yeah. was a that was a little that was a little more intimate than I was expecting. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, right. He's yeah. There's this whole uh, yeah kind of frontal uh, uh-huh. roping thing that happens that uh-huh. <laughs> you know again as it was is prime cable TV kind of Skinamax material. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The crying, uh, moaning voice on the tape mm-hmm. is uh, is Jill Jones. Is it really? She she swears that she's the one on that tape. Yeah, um, it, it, he basically put in like an audio porn. Video. Yes. Yeah. Exactly right. There's a song playing during this during this scene called "God." Mm-hmm. It's an instrumental, and that was a uh, B-side. There's a vocal version also that's got uh, lyrics, uh-huh. and it's an excellent song. It's one of the early songs of his that flat out, uh, you know, is a devotional. Now, I guess there's like two different, like a few different cuts based on which home video edition you buy. Like there's the R regular R version, but they also did like a PG and a G version where they cut out some of the. That's more... interesting. Yeah. They Yeah. They would have had to at least make a TV edit. Because, right. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. You know, channels like mtv showed this a lot prince shows up to the revolution <laughs> rehearsing a song without him and they're mm-hmm. playing the purple rain song they stop when he walks in and he says i'm not gonna do your stupid music <laughs> um, i'm sure that was not meant to be that funny but it's <laughs> right apollonia goes to the pawn shop pawns her bracelet to buy prince that new guitar Prince is writing in a notebook at home. He's listening to the tape. He's starting to warm up to it, even though he keeps saying that he's not going to do their right. stupid music. <laughs> he is listening to it every <laughs> once in a while. and But this is inter- interrupted by his father yelling at his mother. And I think this is the one, too, where I kind of was getting a little giggly. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's so ham-fisted, the way right. that it's this done. Is- this is where, yeah, the dad hits the mom and, yeah. and she gripes at him. You never oh, let no me. Oh, no pun intended. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, you never let me go anywhere. And, and, and then the dad says, I would die for you. Mm. Sort of remorsefully. Yes. And, um, Foreshadowing for a particular song that will be coming exactly. up. <laughs> right. And an act that will take yes. place. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Prince comforts his mother. Then Apollonia shows up at the house with her brand, with this gift, gift wrapped, and he gives, she gives him this brand new guitar. And then they swap earrings. Yeah. Is <laughs> <laughs> a very like '80s thing. Like yeah. I, I, for a while, had pierced ears, and uh-huh. I, I could, I, it just this hit me like as a, as a really romantic gesture mm-hmm. that could only have occurred like in this period. In the of 80s, the '80s, yeah. Friendship uh, bracelets. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then she says to him, I'm going to join Morris's group. And he replies, what? I'm going to join Morris's group. Slap. Slap, yeah. So, yeah, this you know, beautiful, magic, romantic moment is utterly changes gears. Not a good start to a relationship. No, and I think that the guitar was given to him so that it would kind of soften the blow a little bit. Again, no pun intended. For right. him, soften the blow for him when she was going to reveal to him that she was joining Morris's band. Yeah. Prince goes to rehearse. Uh, Chick calls him to see Billy Sparks, the manager, who tells him, like, you're on thin ice. You're now in competition with three other acts for time here. And uh, this is the first time Prince is hearing about this. Mm-hmm. Things are going wrong in his band, at his club, at his his parents and his girlfriend. Everything's all going wrong. And then we get another music montage. Yes. The song When Doves Cry, mm-hmm. which is a studio product, all 
Prince by himself again. Yep. Famously baseless. It originally had bass, and he decided to just take it out of the mix. Yep. It was the first single from the album, and it came out in May of 1984. So it's a couple months before the movie came out yep. and a month before the, the album came out. So this was the first bit of new Prince music under his own name since the 99, 1999 right. album. And um, for many people, it's still his defining song. Yeah. Animals strike curious poses. They feel the heat, the heat between me and you. Just leave me standing. Alone in a world that's so cold. Maybe I'm just too demanding. Maybe I'm just like my father. Too bold. Maybe I'm just like my mother. She's never being kind of chilly on it the first time i heard it but you know it's grown on me over the years yeah there's something kind of jarring and strange about it like it almost seems atonal to me some of the harmonies that come in are, are atonal and, and um it's not very melodic it's more in the energy of the song the production is very stark the drums are very stiff mm-hmm. and insistent yeah. and yet the song is is funky in its own way which i guess he was kind of a genius at like yeah. a lot of the times the drums in his songs aren't particularly funky on their own it's the right. way the other elements are, are are layered on top of it mm-hmm. because of the montage of the video this is basically a music video mm-hmm. with no one ever lip syncing yeah um and i i think the actual music video that was shown on MTV did include some of this montage in it in addition to some lip syncing and 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 a, and a huge like kind of choreographed dance number by the members of the revolution oh, okay. at the end mm-hmm. but this would have been everybody's first hint at some of the images that were going to be in the purple rain movie he visits his beat up mother challenges his dad who is playing piano yeah uh, oh yeah so this song here is called father's song and that, if you listen closely, that melody appears in Computer Blue. There is question as to whether his father actually wrote it. Oh, and then the father says, never get married. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which which Prince took to heart for a number of years. Yeah, he, did, yeah. he did eventually get married. Yeah. But uh, yeah, for this period in the 80s, he was, yeah. It's like a new girlfriend basically every six months, it seems. <laughs> well, that actually leads into computer blue which is the next song we now see probably his most complex song from this time period i'd say it even veers into prog rock or Mm -hmm. you know jazz fusion you know i recommend seeking out the long version it's either 11 minutes or 14 minutes that shows up on the on the deluxe version morris is trying to convince apollonia to come to the first avenue show because they need to promote their upcoming debut of apollonia six but she doesn't want to go see Prince because Prince just slapped her the night before, right. <laughs> whatever. So she's a, she's having mixed feelings. Yeah, this is one of those weird moments where Billy Sparks, the the manager, is not liking this song, Computer Blue. He's quoted as saying, "The kid is in rare form tonight." And then Prince proceeds to go into "Darling Nikki." Knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. She said, how'd you like to waste some time? And I could not resist when I saw little Nicky grind. Prince seems to be trying to humiliate Apollonia. And he sings this song about this kind of dominatrix 
sex fiend, <laughs> as the lyrics go. That's a good way of putting it, dominatrix. But if you listen to the lyrics, the song is kind of a celebration of this fantastic, sexually liberated woman (laughs) (laughs) and who he has this great time with. But his attitude as he performs it is seemingly attempting to shame Apollonia, who, you know, who he just had great sex with. It's very erotic and celebratory, but it's also kind of dirty sounding and sleazy sounding and Mm -hmm. And part of it's his performance, but I think there's also like a harmonic element in the music itself that it kind of is like a striptease. Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> much itself. so. And the scales he uses uh, and these he uses, uh, I was just listening to it today and he's got this weird wah-wah effect on his guitar that it sounds really sexy and slinky like a synthesizer. And mm-hmm. when he played it for the members of the revolution, everybody was blown away by it. Yeah. And his his recording engineer, everybody thought this song was amazing. But you're right, um, though. It is very lurid sounding. It's interesting that the song on its own as an audio experience is, is celebratory of this dominatrix. But in the movie, the way it's dramatically played out, it's a put down. He's repressing his own growing affection for her by saying, mm-hmm. ah, oh, it, that was just sex. You know, you and I a couple months ago talked about the Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper, A Star is Born, mm-hmm. and how a lot of the performance scenes in that movie were shot with the camera on stage. It captured the feeling of being on stage and performing very well. Whereas in this movie, I noticed that all the club performances are shot from the audience member's perspective. You get shots of the crowd occasionally from the stage, but it's mostly you're in the audience watching what's going on stage. The concert scenes in A Star is Born were a little more extemporaneous, maybe is the word for it, whereas Prince's live act is very polished and very choreographed. I don't think to have the camera on stage while he was doing that, I don't know if that would have worked quite as well. Right. The director mentions in his commentary that he just sort of like set his camera up in one spot and let Prince do his thing. I'll also note that the audience is largely white in that yes. most of the movie. That's true. <laughs> and um, they'll do a zoom in or close up uh, when they've got a, a black member of the crowd, but it's mostly white people. And there's a mm. lot of these like new wave punks, quote unquote. Mm, yeah, that's <laughs> with, true. With colorful makeup and haircuts and earrings and stuff. That was definitely the style of the time, but mm. it's also a little comical. It's like the movie itself is portraying the audience that Prince and his management were hoping to capture. And then he gets kind of, he gets chewed out. By Billy Sparks. This stage is no place for your personal shit, man. (laughs) To me, comical of nobody digs your music but yourself. Well, that's a potent thing dramatically in the movie to say. But in real life, you know, he just performed this killer song (laughs) that everybody loves. Right. Except, obviously, Apollonia. (laughs) Yeah. Album after album, growing success, but nobody digs your music. So, you know, I wonder if he actually ever heard that in real life, anybody saying that to him. But I wonder. um, But it works dramatically. It does. It does. (laughs) And then Apollonia 6... Right after this, it's when she has her debut, right? Yeah. They're at a different club called The Taste. And yeah, they premiere finally Sex Shooter. So they're performing in, you know, in lingerie. <laughs> right, right. Uh, in front of a curtain. And the real life story is that um, back when Vanity Six would tour with The Time and Prince, 
the time were the backing band for Vanity Six, and they would perform behind a curtain. That was a, yet another reason that the time had a grudge against Prince was that basically they played they had to play two sets. One of them was behind a curtain, so nobody even knew they were there. So yeah, Sex Shooter comes off. I just recently heard the demo of Prince singing Sex Shooter. Oh, and he sings all the lyrics from the female, like in the female gender. And oh, interesting. Come on, kiss the gun is the end of the chorus kind of makes more sense for a man to be singing that but there's something interesting about having the women do it prince's recording engineer susan rogers commented that you know that most of prince's sexy songs are usually from a woman's position of power so you can talk as much as you want about his dirty mind uh you know his 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 sexually uh evocative lyrics but in most cases they're a celebration of like female power they're never about a man taking advantage of a woman. They're more about a, a man submitting to, to a woman's desire. That, I think, accounts a lot for that big female fandom mm-hmm. that Prince had. Uh, Morris and Apollonia are drinking from a flask after the show. He's flirting with her, trying to get her to come home with him, it seems. Uh, so now it's no longer a professional relationship. And right. She's got, she, they're both pretty tipsy and Prince Charming. <laughs> rides in on a motorcycle (laughs) i'm just thinking of like charming as being like the unpronounceable symbol (laughs) (laughs) right he knocks uh morris over and that's where you get your unfortunate uh f word thrown they park under a bridge really romantic spot i guess (laughs) oh yeah um, uh, he slaps the fat the flask out of her hands and then they start slapping each other around and He's about to hit her. He hesitates, and then she stands up and then throws his earring back at him. I don't know. It's hard to defend him. It really is. There is additional music in this movie that's not written by Prince. There's there's a score mm-hmm. written by Michelle Colombier. It's often like bongos or percussion or strings or stuff. Uh, there's this inc- there's a bunch of incidental music that happens throughout the movie. It works effectively in the movie, but um, uh, it's it's interesting that. Once you've seen the movie a few times, you start realizing like, oh, that's a Prince song, but that's not a Prince. Mm, that's mm-hmm. not Prince music it's a, in other scenes. Right. Um, but I just want to mention it here because this is kind of a, a tense, dramatic scene that returns to his house to see it trashed. Uh, the dad uh, shoots himself. In this scene, it took me a little while to, to figure out kind of what was going on to orient myself to the actions that were happening because it was all shot very dark. But, yeah. it, but I think it works, though, because it, it gives it an air of mystery. Turns out that he's not dead, but they put him on a gurney and he's got bandages and, mm-hmm. and the wife is there crying. And the writer of the original script, uh, William Blinn, says originally there was a murder-suicide intended. Um, originally, oh, the father was, the was going to die uh, and kill the mother. But apparently the executives at uh, Warner Brothers were about to release the movie Star 80, which is about oh, isn't that Playboy playmate Dorothy Stratton who was yes. murdered by her boyfriend slash husband, estranged husband who then killed himself. Right, that was Bob um, Fosse, wasn't it? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, and that is a harsh, harsh movie. And so Warner Brothers had that murder suicide coming up on their hmm. release schedule, and they we don't need they, another one of these. <laughs> we don't need another one of these. Um, yeah. In the same quote, Blinn says, like, you know, that that original script was a little grittier and more inventive than what Hmm. they ended up going with, which 
It's curious. Uh, so yeah, then Prince proceeds to uh, after the cops leave, he proceeds to smash his basement, trashing the room, yeah, knocking everything over. He finds this box of his father's sheet music. If you've got a good memory, you'll remember that the father earlier denied ever writing down his music. He decides to break out Lisa and Wendy's song. We fade out to him finally taking this song seriously. A, a song that is in its current state is called Slow Groove. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. The next big number is The Time. Yeah. Yep. Back to First Avenue and they performed The Bird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was far and away my favorite non-Prince performance in the movie. mock prince afterwards and you get the house the family joke while the time are performing the bird you see these shots of prince and the revolution sitting silently with right. sour faces <laughs> exactly <laughs> sitting in the in the in the dressing room they go out on stage and prince comes out wielding that brand new scrolly fancy guitar that apollonia bought him yes um, so, yeah, he comes out, introduces this new song. He ded- dedicates it to his father. Mm-hmm. And then he gives Lisa and Wendy credit for writing it. Then uh, Wendy starts the chords. The band perfectly performs and a completely unrehearsed song. <laughs> yes. So this uh-huh. is another song that he wrote just out of the blue or out of the purple. As no. oh, well done. <laughs> and when the director um, heard it, he was like, oh, we got to use that song in the movie because before that they were, and we're going to, and we could name the movie purple rain. Mm. And Prince was like, yeah, sure. original name of the movie its working title was dreams that's that's such a boring title which is so (laughs) boring yes (laughs) this song was apparently a reaction in a way to bob seger (laughs) i you know i heard that yeah that's kind of nuts uh, dr fink the second keyboard player says during that tour we kept uh, he's talking about the tour before in 83 uh-huh. we kept running into bob seeger and the silver bullet band after one of the shows prince asked me what made seeger so popular the dr fink says well he's playing mainstream pop rock there was still a lot of segregation on mainstream radio i said mm-hmm. prince if you were to write something along these lines it would cross things over for you even further so in theory that's the the, the genesis of this full-on classic rock maybe could even be described as country country um, adjacent yeah a little gospel-y too mm-hmm. and then when it was done <laughs> prince thought it sounded eerily like journeys faithfully 
Oh, weird. <laughs> so he thought it sounded like their song so much that he actually called up Jonathan Kane, played him the song to get approval. And Jonathan Kane was just like, oh, I'm flattered. You think that sounds like us? And I'll challenge you to go ahead and, you know, A, B them. Like, there is a similarity. Prince was right. There, there, there is a vibe to them that is similar. Love and a music man ain't always what it's supposed to be. Oh, girl, you stand by me. I'm forever yours. Faithfully. So the crowd is overwhelmed and like all the all the nastiness <laughs> and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all the disapproving looks from the earlier performances are all gone. Everybody's swept up in this. Prince leaves the stage before the band is even finished playing. <laughs> he just like runs through the halls to his motorcycle. He wants to get the fuck out of there. Mm-hmm. He's about to jump on his motorcycle and then who else but Jill Jones pops out of the shadows crying. <laughs> she says hi and he says hi as he is soaking in this applause coming from inside the club he realizes this is for him he's 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 done it he's cracked the code (laughs) as it were like he's found a way to uh, express himself and appeal to the broad audience and he did it through collaborating with his band members yeah it's not all just about him <laughs> and he learned a very valuable life lesson yeah so he run <laughs> he, he runs back in and uh backstage apollonia is standing amongst the crowd and she's got tears in her eyes and he kisses her all's good all is good good and done back <laughs> with her and then uh he gets back on stage because their crowd's crying for more right <laughs> um finally a band is going to play more than one song <laughs> in a row um he he comes out on stage holding two tambourines and he throws them out to the crowd um this is before the new song has even started and this became a thing on the subsequent tour oh okay that uh he would uh during i think they would end the show with these this this final pair of songs that we're about to get to and mm-hmm. uh they would throw out dozens of tambourines to the crowd. That's cool. Apparently, it was one crew member's job ahead of every show to spray paint these tambourines purple <laughs> like, no for way. every stop on the tour. I would love that job. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they would also throw out flowers, too. Paper, oh, okay. Like paper flowers. Can I um, just say, I don't know why this... <laughs> For many years when I was younger, I used to think that the the cover of Purple Rain, the side with the flowers, I used to think they were vegetables. <laughs> that is somebody said. So one of the band members said that. Is that celery? Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It's a little jarring. Uh, yeah. It is yeah. funny. So yeah. So he does the song "I Would Die for You," which for him, at least musically, this is his most like crowd pleasing, danceable number that he's done. He's dancing his ass off, uh, and his band is dancing their asses mm-hmm. off. Um, while he's performing on stage and the crowd is loving it, everybody's digging it, uh, you see in montage 
that um, he is uh, returned to his basement, is, organizes his dad's music. Uh, I believe there's maybe a shot in a hospital or something. You see that the dad is recuperating. Yes. There's some healing going on. And then uh, so back to the club. I Would Die For You segues immediately into Baby, I'm a Star. It's kind of funny how the movie's grand finale is like kind of this obscure deep cut. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a throwback even further i think from the i would die for you but it mm -hmm. the song the songs go together very well and in fact you know when they went on tour they would play these two songs together like this yeah yeah baby baby i'm a star is like from like controversy era yeah as it's winding down prince gets this gleeful look in his eyes <laughs> <laughs> puts on his guitar runs on top of an amp and then starts squirting a liquid from the head of his guitar close up on him looking over his shoulder almost winking at the camera and then freeze frame yes. on his on his impish face <laughs> having just shot his wad on the crowd <laughs> <laughs> that ending really jarred me i was like oh oh we're done I, now okay <laughs> i think it probably flew right by me back in in 84 when i saw this as a uh -huh. teenager but watching it this time around I was like, this is how you're ending this movie? Yeah. We just went through this trans... <laughs> we just went through the ringer with these people. Right. And then we and wrap then, up on a jizz joke. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's, so, that's so cheekily Prince, though. It is. What makes it even more jarring tonally is that on the audio track, as the, the song abruptly cuts out, mm -hmm. and then a collage of music, various music cues from all the songs from the movie starts playing. Mm -hmm. Yes. I don't know if this registered with you, but again, like the, the, it really stood out to me this time around uh -huh. where you get these clips of audio sound clips from every one of the songs um, just awkwardly like crammed all next to each other. Like yeah, it's a like a badly done mixtape. Yeah. Or like some kind of mashup gone wrong. Yeah. Like a match. Yeah. And so, and, like all the elegance and joy of <laughs> what we'd seen, you know, the, 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 the emotional choreography of, you know, purple rain and it's <laughs> tear inducing finality, finale <laughs> to, the, to these like upbeat dance celebration numbers yeah. with this almost like messianic message of yep. I would die for you, which, you know, has a religious element to it. You know, he kind of is putting himself like as a Christ figure, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you know, he literally uses the word Messiah. Um, so, uh, you know, that's all calculated by him. You know, the, that mm. following Purple Rain, like, is, is a very powerful, like, going to church kind yeah, of event. Yeah. And then, yeah, ending it on this crass sex joke. <laughs> it subverts <laughs> the entire film. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I still have that face, that look on his face ingrained in my mind when he turns around and looks at the camera before the credits start to roll like <laughs> take that you know <laughs> it's just, right. it's like the dopiest look so, uh, so apparently the executives at warner brothers were concerned that this film would only appeal to 14 year old urban girls which is code of course but um, <laughs> right 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 they did some text test screenings and they all went well and then they did and then they went they did a text a test screening in texas you know, an exclusively white crowd, basically, and they went nuts for it. Before the film even opened, Warner Brothers uh, expanded the number of screens that they were originally planning on uh, on showing. Wow. It. Mixed critical reactions. Apparently, what we're saying is not uncommon. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, the performance and musical scenes are amazing. The rest is 
utter nonsense, according <laughs> to the New York Times. <laughs> but uh, it did make Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel's top 10 lists at the end of the year. Which is pretty astounding. Uh, it did very well. Uh, you know, it was an R-rated movie. It grossed more than $7 million in its first weekend. The album itself, which was released a month before the movie, it eventually it debuted at number 11 shortly after the movie came out. In the beginning of August, it was number one yes. album. It won an Oscar for Best Original Song Score, which is a category mm-hmm. that actually no longer exists. One of his other uh, side projects during this 83-84 period was he collaborated with Stevie Nicks on the song Stand Back, which he plays the synthesizers on. Stevie Nicks, with her then-new husband, heard Little Red Corvette. She loved the song and then decided to write a song of her own based on the same chord progression and melody as Little Red Corvette. So she wrote Stand Back, presented it to Prince. He he liked it. He Uh agreed to come into the studio. He worked for a few hours on the synthesizer, laying down like a drum track and like a synthesizer part, and uh, said, yeah, here. He is uncredited on the album itself. He did take credit, however, for writing and producing or not producing, but writing Sugar Walls for Sheena Easton. Oh, yes, yes. Again, mm-hmm. in the same time period. Sugar Walls ends up in the Filthy 15. And, and you this know what is the huge. Filthy 15 is. Yes. So the Filthy 15 is this list of songs put together by the Parents Music Resource Center. On that 15, Prince's Darling Nikki is number one. <laughs> <laughs> Sheena Easton's Sugar Walls are number two. Is number two. The rest of the list is mostly heavy metal, but there's a, a few other R&B artists in there. Madonna's "Dress You Up," which <laughs> never struck me as a I was going to say that uh, seems like they're stretching a little bit. Mary Jane Girls in My House, which is sexual for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cindy Lauper's "She Bop," definitely. Yeah, for sure. And and Vanity, a song called Strap On Robbie Baby, <laughs> which ironically enough is not written by Prince because this was from her. She left the Prince camp, remember? That's right. Yeah. But but she subsequently had a solo record on Motown of all labels. Here's the quote from uh, Tipper Gore, the founder. She wrote a book in 1987 called Raising PG Kids in an X-Rated Society. Oh, Lord have mercy. she says i purchased prince's best-selling purple rain for my 11 year old daughter when we brought the album home put it on our stereo and listened to it together we heard the words to another song darling nikki (laughs) i knew a girl named nikki guess you could say she was a sex fiend met her in a hotel lobby masturbating with a magazine i can't believe she actually had to put this in her own book (laughs) (laughs) Back to Tipper. The song went on and on in a similar manner. I couldn't believe my ears. The vulgar lyrics embarrassed both of us. At first, I was stunned. Then I got mad. (laughs) Millions of Americans were buying Purple Rain with no idea what to expect. Masturbating with the magazine kind of shocked me when I first heard it, too. Sure. And and over the years, I've kind of struggled between, like, what exactly does that mean? Does it's it mean true, that like the, she's the physically was... using a magazine to pleasure herself? <laughs> right. Or is she just looking at a magazine? That's what I always, asso- always assumed. Herself. He uses the word masturbating. Mm-hmm. That's not a pornographic word. That's a technical scientific term. The rest of the song has nothing dirty in it. She had so many devices. Okay, yeah. That that implies that she's got sex toys. Right. But um, he never says what... 
anybody is doing. There's no other body parts mentioned. No. There's no. There's no. There's no there's acts, no acts right. described. Right. I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey is <laughs> dirtier than this song. <laughs> Bob Cavallo, his manager, his reaction was, "We didn't. We just didn't pay attention. Anytime Prince got bad publicity, it helped him. Their complaints." weren't just sex a lot of that metal stuff that i was mentioning mm-hmm. like twisted sisters we're yeah. not going to take it is it, the problem with the lyrical content is that it promotes violence with the metal bands you get a lot of drug alcohol use the occult uh-huh. and violence and violence yeah but the r&b stuff is entirely sex yeah <laughs> sex slash masturbation is actually how they lay it out yeah. <laughs> sex slash masturbation that makes no sense <laughs> right there i guess there was like founded by four women and they were all wives of uh, uh senators i believe they're all white of course and i think apparently they they're all christian but the, that was never i don't think that was a uh a defining or at least a uh, literally stated goal of theirs right to, um but to, i think i think you could well infer that that was the case right but tipper gore's husband al gore was a senator and uh you know it's insane to think that he later was uh, vice president and then later ran for president and could potentially have actually been our president. And this yeah. woman could have been, you know, first lady. <laughs> so this is like late 1985. And um, because of their political connections, uh, they were able to actually have these hearings before the Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee. They weren't trying to ban these records as much as they were trying to institute much like what the movie industry had to, to, to have a labeling and rating system so I that see. parents so the parents and audiences could know what they were getting what, mm-hmm. what to expect from this product. Radio already had its own uh, restrictions on right. swearing and language. This was another level of, of censorship. I'll use that word in quotes because what ended up happening was that the record labels um, did finally agree to put a generic sticker saying parental warning advisory. Yeah. But without breaking down specifically the, the, the content that was potentially offensive. Like you'll see nowadays in, in movie trailers, when a movie is rated R, it'll specify what, you know, drug use or sexuality uh-huh. or something like that. Yeah. That didn't used to be the case. You just got an R rating. It didn't. It didn't break down the like nasty stuff. Like why? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I kind of like that better. Like, I prefer not knowing what. I do too, because there's potential spoilers there. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's better to be shocked and rattled by with the content that you're not expecting. Yeah. If I know there's going to be nudity in a movie, I'm going to be looking out for it the whole right. time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on who's getting nude, but. <laughs> okay. This uh, case is very famous. Uh, you know, arguing against this move of censorship was very famously Frank Zappa, musician John Denver. Really? Had, yeah. He points out the fact that his song Rocky Mountain High was accused of being a drug song. Oh, back okay. In the day, and he said, that's not what it is. And, and even if it was, that's up to you. And then D. Snyder from Twisted Sister, uh, who <laughs> went so far as to defend it by saying, like, you know, these songs about this song about violence called Under the Blade that you think is about murder is actually about plastic surgery. And it seemed pretty ridiculous then, I suppose. I mean, I was at the time I was in, you know, I was a 
I was in high school and was pretty much being able to buy any records I want. Although I originally couldn't buy any records by Kiss because my parents oh, yeah. thought they were satanic. Mm-hmm. And this was back, uh, you know, when I was in middle school. So by high school, I had free reign. But um, right when I hear Love uh, Gun, I just I absolutely think of Satan for sure. That <laughs> right, <laughs> right, yeah. Why doesn't this filthy 15 have Christine 16, <laughs> where a grown man admits right. to hanging out outside a high school, lusting <laughs> after this, oh, whatever. It's so stupid. Um, they succeeded in getting this sticker, which the only real fallout was that big chain stores like Walmart wouldn't sell records that had the parental advisory sticker on it. Some revenue was lost that way. Mm-hmm. But guess what? You know, what happens in the 85, 86 era is that hip hop starts taking off. By the time the late 80s, you've got gangster rap, New York uh, based rap, and people are swearing and telling dirty stories and skits all over the place. And oh, yeah. Having that label on your album only upped your credibility and your desirability. I've got a couple of corrections I want to make. When we were discussing Apollonia earlier, you said that she was married during the time she made this movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I looked that up on IMDb, and you are correct. She is listed as being married from 1980 to 1985 to a martial artist named Kazja. Oh. But I also have this quote from Apollonia saying, at the time, I was seeing David Lee Roth. You can still be married to someone and be dating. Somebody. Oh, yes, so just, yes. Mm-hmm. Just leave it at that. I'm not going to – I don't want to create any gossip. But no, no. <laughs> both, both of our facts have some basis. And another extremely minor was that back when I talked about uh, Prince's contract was nearly up and he demanded to get a movie deal in order to resign. That was not with the record label. That was actually with his management, Bob Cavallo and Steve mm. Farnoli. So in high school, I had – friends who I played music with. Uh, I was in some art classes with some girls who we just hung out and listened to music together. So I had male friends and I had female friends. And a couple of these female friends uh, were uh, really into Prince. And this mm-hmm. is before Purple Rain. This was um, like 1999 era. Mm-hmm. And so I, I heard some of that music when I was hanging out with them. And they were always trying to get me to, you know, realize how much of a genius Prince was and how yeah. cool this music was. You know, I was seeing his videos on on MTV and whatever, and hearing his songs on the radio, but um, I would not consider myself a fan yet. You uh-huh. know, I did, I just did plain old did not listen to R and B music. I think mm-hmm. my favorite band at this time was probably U two. So I was in a little cover band. I was just le- really learning how to play bass, but we would play Rush songs and Led Zeppelin songs and some Beatles songs and stuff. U two, whatever. But mm-hmm. straight ahead, you know rock i guess you know i think at the time we thought we were cutting edge but (laughs) looking back (laughs) on it it's that's pretty mainstream yeah (laughs) (laughs) so anyway the movie came out in the summer so we're all out of school and it turns out my cousins who were uh younger by a year and a couple more years Mm -hmm. than me were visiting us this is in massachusetts um so they were visiting us for probably a week or two uh, during the summer, and that happened to coincide when the Purple Rain movie had opened up, and oh, yeah. we all liked music and 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 MTV, so we uh, we all went to go see it together, and we just absolutely loved it. And I probably went to go see it again with my uh, lady friends from school, and uh-huh. you know, who you know, this movie just confirmed how great they already thought he was. Um, uh, later in the year, when uh, when he was on tour. My cousins uh, back in uh, 
in the Washington DC area, got to see the, the concert tour. Mm-hmm. And, um, and one of the nights that they were, uh, uh, at the cat at, at the Capitol center in Maryland, um, was filmed the video for I would die for you. Oh, no kidding. And apparently you can see one of my cousins in, in this music video. Wow. In the <laughs> <laughs> How cool um, is that? So, uh, you know, going back to like the album, I would die for you was, I guess maybe the fourth single and mm-hmm. released. So by that time, the movie had already been out in theaters and now the label wanted to promote the tour. So they, uh, oh, yeah. so was doing this huge tour of America for, uh, I think like maybe six months or so or something. Hmm. And, um, so they filmed, they decided to make a live video. Um, you know, it's not the studio version of the song. Yeah. Um, I think the full length version is like maybe 10 minutes or something, but I uh-huh. think the, the, the released version was much shorter than that. Um, so for whatever reason, because of the touring schedule, I didn't get to see him until later in 85 in March. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was back in the day when if you wanted to get good concert tickets, you had to sleep out <laughs> in line outside of the ticket. Um, out of the ticket sellers place. Yeah. And, uh, apparently I did not sleep over. I remember spending some time in line with them, uh-huh. but, uh, but these two girlfriends camped out all night and got, got us a bunch of tickets. <laughs> they're, um, they're very good friends to do that. They were very good friends. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they, yeah. Um, and so I did end up, end up going with them and, and, and another friend and, uh, they rented a limo, <laughs> <laughs> this the concert venue was like it's amazing maybe about an hour away so it would have been a pain in the neck to drive but yeah um, we were all super excited we all got dressed up and wore jackets and ties and stuff like that because we had really good seats yeah you know, like on the floor um and the concert was really phenomenal and uh i ended up getting the tour program which i still have oh, how cool um, it's really beautiful um is there any chance uh, you could take like like some pictures of that and i could post them yeah, yeah. That'd be yeah. cool. Yeah. I will. Yeah. Um so one of those male friends of mine who I played music with, he also really responded to the movie. And uh he was already really into Jimi Hendrix and, mm. and Zeppelin and stuff and he he rec- he saw like a kindred spirit in Prince. Totally. He was, and so he was a guitar player um and singer and uh he decided to uh, put together a little group to play at the high school talent show at the end of uh, our senior year. Um, <laughs> and uh, I played bass, and so I, I was happy to play it. So we yeah. learned to play Let's Go Crazy. And uh, <clears throat> I don't think we did much Piece of cake. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I mean, I'll say most of it is like the riff, the uh, getting that down. Um, yeah. But I don't think we did any dance moves uh, and I don't think I was singing at all, but it was a like maybe five, six piece group of people, mm-hmm. and uh, we performed in front of our high school. Uh, I don't remember anything else that appeared on that bill, <laughs> um, but we went out and did it, and uh, it was very fun. And he, uh, you know, he so he was out front. This is my friend David. I'll say uh-huh. day for you. He was already kind of a flamboyant, well known personality at mm-hmm. school so <laughs> this was uh this was like a good showcase for his talent yeah. so he sang it and played guitar and and kind of danced around a bit <laughs> um i believe we ended up coming in second I don't nice 
makes a group of jocks beat us out. Possibly. Very impressive. But um, uh, it was yeah, it was it was ended up not being embarrassing. Um, nice. <laughs> uh, so I always will have a fond memory of that. You anyway, know, so it came out in July of '84. Came out on vid- on home video in December of '84. And it must have premiered on HBO maybe around that time, too, because I have a videotape taped from HBO that my brother and I held on to for years and years. Fast forward to um, in 1989, when I graduated college, mm-hmm. this was when Batman was about to come out, yeah. um, which was getting a lot of hype ahead of time. I don't think anybody had heard it yet. I had a, I took a road trip after I graduated college with my then girlfriend, and we mm-hmm. took a cross-country trip driving from New York City to California, up to Seattle, and then back. We intentionally, because we were both big Prince fans, had a bunch of Prince cassettes. Mm-hmm. I think Sign of the Times was his latest album at the time, and we oh, both yeah. just poured that record like everybody else. So we charted a course through Minnesota and visited the Paisley Park studio. Paisley Park, that yes. He subsequently uh, built. They didn't let us in. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I actually went in and talked to the receptionist to ask if it was possible to get a tour, and they said no. I had concocted some story of like, oh, I'm in a band, and we're looking for studios <laughs> to record in. Like, you think I could take a tour of the facilities? The entire time straining my ear to possibly hear some music leaking from behind the door. Oh, could you imagine? Nothing. But it was you know, a pretty generic-looking building just sure. by itself and then for whatever reason we had the address of his house so we drove to his house oh, no way. and uh it was you know behind gates and trees and stuff but we could see the peak of a like a purple house oh, of course it's see the roof, and there was a windmill on his property no activity that we could discern but um we at least made the pilgrimage that is so cool yeah <laughs> and he was in minneapolis his entire life right yeah, he recorded a lot in L.A., and I'm sure he had a house in L.A., but he did not, he, he did not permanently live there. The sad footnote is that mm. later on that trip, the Batman soundtrack came out. I heard the song Bat Dance, which mm. I immediately hated, and we actually saw the movie, <laughs> and there was hardly any Prince music in it. <laughs> so I felt incredibly <laughs> let down. <laughs> well, part of the reason that he did that Batman soundtrack was to make money. Because yeah. apparently he was in debt. Because even though he'd made tons and tons of money, he hadn't personally managed it well. Yeah. And he was broke as hell. He was approached to do that project, and his management suggest, you know, recommended mm-hmm. it. Like, you could make a shit ton of money just doing this. He had purchased some new, like, sampling synthesizer or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so he literally, you know, holed himself up in his studio and just played around with his new equipment for a few weeks and wrote that soundtrack huh. um <laughs> yeah you know i think like maybe two or three songs from that appear in the movie but he ended up writing an entire album and it was mm. way more than tim burton had imagined that he was going to write because he already wow. had uh, danny elfman writing a, a music score yeah yeah the prince was so enamored with by the by the prospect by the concept of it mm-hmm. uh, you know intrigued by this you know dual personality thing Wow, so that's the long version. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty um, amazing. We covered like everything. I was just relieved that you liked it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was too. <laughs> had, I, thought you, I thought you had a, a political 
SJW reason for never seeing this movie. No, no. Because you heard that it was misogynistic, which it kind of is, but I, even that I'd have to put it in quotes. So yeah, no, I was I was relieved I liked it too because I, I kind of knew what I was in for, but I also kind of didn't know what I was in for. And, and for me, you know, I have an appreciation of camp films yeah. and, and B-movies and cult movies. Yeah. So I so to me, the bad script or the bad acting by certain performers mm-hmm. doesn't jar me. Yeah, it almost it doesn't it doesn't take me out of it. Yeah, but I can see that they're not strong. <laughs> sure. And I think I think the reason that some people might have a problem with this movie is because so many people consider it like one of the greatest music and rock movies of all time. And so they're expecting all this great acting and all this great directing and editing and everything like that but that's not really what it is <laughs> right you know and i think that disappoints people who might be expecting something a little bit different yeah but then on the other hand like what is it aspiring to a hard day's night by the beatles and directed by richard lester is a masterpiece like as a rock movie and mm. it's also genuinely funny yeah and all the performances are good yeah it's got a witty script um it's enthusiastically performed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, to me, like that's the gold standard. But I can't think sure. of a whole lot of others. Yeah, um, there really was I, no I precedent for a movie like this. You know, I don't even, you know, from IMO, Help is not as good as Hard Day's Night. No, it's not. Um, uh, Head is fascinating. Mm-hmm. But I... That's but, a more challenging movie, I'd say. It is. It is. That's, I was going to say, but it's not as watchable as most it's not as, Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me just name a couple of sources. Obviously, there's the uh, the deluxe version of the CD that I highly recommend to anybody. There is the 20th anniversary DVD, which is a few years old, but that's where I got. I learned a lot from the, the commentary, the director's commentary on there that also has... Uh, comments from the producer Robert Cavallo and um, the director of photography also so they talk a lot about the technical aspects of, of the movie then the other big thing was this uh, book called Prince and the Purple Rain era studio sessions 1983 and 1984 written by Dwayne Tudal and it's came out last year or, or, or the most recent revision of it is last year I listened to the audiobook, which was a total of 19 hours. <laughs> um, wow. I don't, I don't know how thick the book is in itself, but um, yeah. I think at some point I'll probably break down and actually <clears throat> buy the book because it, uh, you know, it goes uh, almost, it's almost like a day by day diary of uh, what Prince was doing every day. You know, if he played a show, that's incredible. If he recorded in the studio, um, it, it, and it's got a lot of interviews uh, with, uh, People who worked with him in the studio, various recording engineers, uh, members of his bands, um, you know, uh, members of the Time mm-hmm. and Vanity, and and later Apollonia. Wow, very um, extensive. And then, uh, and it talks about all the songs uh, that uh, never got released, and and uh, it's just a good, really good chronological out uh, overlook at his career as uh, you know, moving from 1999 into purple rain and then beyond uh-huh. that. And then a shout out to a spin magazine article from a few years ago. And I'll send you the link to this, uh, called okay. Prince, the oral Prince, the oral history of purple rain, mm. um, which is a nice, uh, 
lengthy article that also interviews a lot of these same key players uh-huh. uh, and kind of condenses a lot of these various stories into into one easily uh, digestible article. Um, mm-hmm. So there were a lot of nice little tidbits and quotes in that article that were not in the Dwayne Tudal book because cool. they yeah. talk more generally about the movie. I guess mm. to sum it up, the album has stood the test of time. I don't know that the movie has. Um, it's it, it has its place in, in music history for sure. It's one of the few albums I can think of that doesn't have a weak song on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it doesn't have a filler track on it. Right. I mean, I probably prefer some songs to others, but the whole thing is all killer, no filler. Dave, do you want to do a little little promoting for where people can find you in the world of social media? Sure. Uh, I'm on I'm on Twitter at cult dung, which is short for culture dungeon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but cult dung. I'm pretty active on Twitter. There's a link to my Instagram there, which I hardly use, and a link to my Tumblr, which I never use <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm still doing the uh, Rock Solid album of the day. Yes, which uh, is really for this cool. This year. Um, I'll probably do it next year too, but uh, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a nice community of people doing that. It is. It's wonderful. And of course, shout out to uh, Pat Francis, who brought us, brought us all together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Over the years, yeah. through his years of podcasting on Rock Solid Show. Mm-hmm. Okay. Have a great night. I will talk to you later. All right. All right. Thanks care. a lot. Yep. Bye. Thank you. Yep. Bye bye.